I heard a great description of Canada somewhere. I forget where it was, but it was just like, yeah, Canada. Canada is like the upstairs neighbor of a meth lab. <laughs> <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today, Mr. Ryan Clary. Hello, everybody. And uh, that's it. It's just me and you, compadre. I know. It's fantastic. <laughs> is it? It's <Okay>. fabulous. <laughs> Don't, you're going to make Steve all self-conscious. What, you think he listens to our podcast? <laughs> oh, that's good. Good point. <laughs> he has no clue what we talk about unless he's here. <laughs> True. Good point. We can actually, yeah, we can talk about whatever we want. That's right. Um, yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, I keep thinking we're a day further along in the week than we actually are. So it's kind of dragging along, but we're getting there. Slowly but surely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a lot going on this week, of course, uh, which we won't really get into, which you don't have to get into because I feel like with Steve not here, we don't have to talk about politics and what's going on. Exactly. So, um, well, I did find it interesting that, you know, we had an email from a listener. Yay, our listeners. We're getting email on a regular basis now. Yeah. Um, someone who kind of tongue in cheek wants to move to Canada <laughs> from the U.S. <laughs> nice. It was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. Shout out to Lisa. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you're right. We are getting like regular email, like like one a week now. That's yeah. Crazy. Crazy. It is crazy. With it, we're deluged. With it. <laughs> Can't possibly answer it all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Slow down. We can't handle it. Um, hey, speaking of the show, mm -hmm. uh, what uh, what are we what are we doing today? Today we are speaking with New York Times best-selling author and motivational speaker Michael Hinkson. You know, I'm excited about this because uh, his story is is really interesting. He was in the World Trade Center on September 11th. On I believe it was the 78th floor. You, yeah, I'm sure some of our listeners have probably heard of him and, and maybe even have read his book, which is called Thunderdog, uh, all about his, well, I mean, it's it's about sort, sort of the story about 9-11, but it's also a, a lot more, but it's about the relationship that he had with his guide dog, of course, who was definitely responsible for helping him get down out of the tower from the 78th floor. Very, very interesting. But he's also done a ton of other stuff. Absolutely, um, you know he's he's been involved in the assistive technology field for many many years, and he's he's also been like a, a huge Braille advocate as well. Um, he's he's been involved in in a lot, so uh, I don't even know where the conversation is going to go with him. But, uh, <laughs> we'll just have to see where it goes. Well, there's always never a shortage of things to talk about, right? So 
And this guy, you know, looking at his bio, like like you mentioned, he done everything from A to Z. You know, we got to stop having overachieving people on this podcast. <laughs> I feel really bad about myself. Like, if someone were to interview me for a podcast, it would be literally a 10-minute show. I'd be like, yep. yeah, Blunt got a music school, got an English degree, and <laughs> that's, yeah. That's my life. <laughs> Here I am. Here I am on the award-winning, world-renowned AT Banter. I also wanted to plug our AT Banter Live show coming up in December. Oh, no. Woohoo! AT Banter Live. Stay tuned for more. Really? Are we doing this? <laughs> We're doing this. Okay. All right. We'll talk about the tech <laughs> off mic, but I, I, I do know of a way to do it. So Excellent. Um, hey, I saw an interesting article here uh, just recently uh, that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. Your, um, th- have you heard of this, this? There's this movie out called The Witches. I don't I, know if you've heard of it. I haven't, it's based, no. It's based on a, uh, a kid's book. Uh, and it was, I, like, I don't know, I don't know nothing about the, the story or the movie. I think, it's a, I think they actually made a movie of this also in the 80s. Anyways, it's about witches, yada, yada, yada you know, basically for kids or young adults, probably kids, I think. Um, but it's gotten some flack lately from the disability community. Why? In, in what way? Apparently, many disability advocates have criticized the film because Anne Hathaway is in it and she plays a witch. And pictures of her character surfaced online that showed her with three webbed hand fingers. Okay. Which was, you know, supposed to be, I guess that she's a witch and she's like a monster and it's, it was supposed to be like a sort of a horrifying thing. But of course, that's an actual condition known as split hand. Right. And so a lot of people with limb differences kind of took a little bit of umbrage with sort of this portrayal of something that's an actual disability being portrayed in the light of, oh, this is a, a monster. Um, especially in a movie that's sort of aimed towards kids because this is, it's, it's very much goes against the whole idea of inclusion and you know and i feel like it's not you know this wasn't something that the 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 movie company went out of their way to do i think that it's just it's just a lot of people are still a little bit tone deaf when it comes to these things okay well you're bringing this story up to get me riled up because you want to debate so here you go rob is it okay then to have a blind superhero or why is it okay to have a blind superhero but not a witch with webbed fingers well, I think that I think that the idea here is, and you know, this is—it's a trope. It, it really is the idea of using disability to portray, because we talked about this one of, in one of our early earlier episodes, like at the first one of the first ten episodes that we ever did. We did a, a episode about disability in stuff like comic books, right? And disability in, in media, and yeah, it has been a trope for many many years about how disability is kind of used to portray villainous people or to, to portray monstrous things. I get it. I get both sides of this because I really don't think that there was, there was anything malicious. Probably not. No intent behind it. But I also think that there was maybe some, they, they just didn't really think about this. Well, let me, let me ask you this then, because I'm seeing on Twitter and, and social media more and more often that people with disabilities want persons with disabilities representation in movies and TV. 
So would it have been okay then to have somebody with that condition play that part? No, I don't think so. I think the, I think the issue that they had with it is that it were, it's portrayed as a monstrous, scary thing. And I think that that's where the problem lies. It's, and I think that part of the, the sensitivity to this is that if the fact that it is for kids. So it's just, I think, I feel like they feel like it's sending the wrong message to the wrong audience. Okay, but then let me look at, let me flip it again. If Daredevil or Spider-Man or Superman or any of these good heroes that we all yeah. looked up to as kids right. had webbed fingers or like Daredevil being blind or... Yeah. You yeah. know, name your superhero with a disability. Yeah. Is that okay? Do people take issue with that? Or is it just because this witch is a monster? Yeah, no. You can't just, be hypocritical. No, no. It's just because this witch is a monster. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's the problem with it. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody has a problem with, you know, disability being portrayed in a light where. As long it's, as it's a positive, good. As a positive, <laughs> well, no, but you, but you will, but. I mean, really, that's that is that's exactly. I, I just don't think it's right that it's a monster and everybody's screaming about it. I think if it was somebody who actually had that legitimate disability playing that role, would there still be an uproar? And some people would say yes, but um, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I should put a couple of things in context. I don't think everybody's screaming about this. This is just some some sort of backlash. This is that this has gotten a little bit on Twitter, right. but here, let me read you this quote. Let me, All let right. me see if this, this illuminates with you. Okay. So I'll quote the article quote, Paralympic swimmer, Amy Marin said on Twitter on Monday that while she understood the film was fictional, it's depiction of limb differences perpetuated a harmful trope that was inaccurate. It's not unusual for surgeons to try to build hands like this for children or adults with certain limb differences. She said, Quote, it's upsetting to something that makes a person different being represented as something scary. And I, I disagree. You know, I, like I said, I'm seeing people with disabilities wanting to play these parts in movies and TV. And so if they want to play those parts, more power to them. Equality, diversity, inclusion, giver. If this one person has an issue with it, that's okay. They're entitled to their opinion. But people with disabilities are wanting to play parts in movies and TVs, especially of actors or characters with a disability. You know, it's not like I can go and play Daredevil and start jumping off buildings. Of course, that's not realistic. But if somebody has a limb difference or somebody is an amputee playing the part of somebody with an amputee, that's okay. That should be fine. And that's what people are calling for. Yeah, so. Okay. But but okay, so but just to clarify though, this but this was neither of those things. Like Anne Hathaway does not right. have hands like that. And that's so, why I said earlier, would it be okay if it was somebody who had hands like this who well, applied for the role and got the role? Is that reach, okay? You should reach out to Amy Marin, who has a limb difference, <laughs> and ask her because Well, I, I'm just saying, you know, pe people I, people with these disabilities want these roles. And if you're gonna if you're going to yeah. yell and scream about it, then go apply for the roles. You know? <laughs> I, I just think that these are two very different issues. Like, I mean, yes, I, I think that, that, you know, representation uh, is important in film for sure. I mean, that's the fight that they've been fighting for a while. Um, but I think, the, like I said, the big problem with this is just that, you know, they don't, you don't want to portray something like a limb difference in a situation that is, that makes it scary 
or okay but life's not rainbows and puppies all the time i'm sorry like it's that's just not life you you can't i I disagree okay all right anyways well (laughs) twitter twitter and me we'll leave it at that hey if anybody wants to pipe in absolutely cowbell at atbanter.com send us an email and tell us what you think exactly that's what we want we do we want to know Hi everyone, this is Steve from Canadian Assistive Technologies and this is a shameless plug. A few years back, everyone was all excited about the pen friend from RNIB, which allowed folks to use small stickers with a chip in them to label products and record descriptions. We are pleased to be Canada's distributor of Way Around products, which do the same thing, but utilize a cell phone as the reader. There are a variety of available tags from simple stickers to clothing buttons, magnets, clips. There's something to label almost everything. The descriptions you enter can be any length and they are automatically backed up to your account on the web. So no matter what happens, you'll never lose your descriptions. Check them out on our website at www.canastech.com. Joining us now is Michael Hinkson. Wow. How are you, sir? Doing lovely. Well, listen, yeah, we want to thank you again for joining us. I don't know where to start, where to start with you, sir. Um, you know, of course, I think a lot of people probably recognize your name from your experiences, of course, on 9-11, which uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to. Um, but I think that I, I kind of want to start and, and get a little bit more of a sense of, of just your early years and your sort of early experience with assistive technology in particular, but also just your, your sort of your early years and your eye condition. So maybe let, let's start with that. So I was born in 1950. Don't tell my age. <clears throat> I don't really care. But um, it was about four months after I was born that it was discovered that I was blind due to, at that time, what was called retrolentral fibroplasia. And um, if people know how to want to know how to spell that, they can go <laughs> look it up in my book, Thunderdog, because it's in there. But um, it's now called retinopsio prematurity, and I still haven't figured out why they changed the name. I'm not sure that it's all that easier. But the bottom line is that because of too much oxygen as a premature baby, the retina uh, somewhat malformed and, and didn't grow right. And so I was blind. <clears throat> it was discovered that I was blind and the doctors told my parents to send me away to a home for handicapped kids and so on, because no blind child could ever be a good addition to a family and no blind child could ever grow up to amount to anything. That was the learned medical opinion of doctors in Chicago. And as I like to say, my father had an eighth grade education, self-taught beyond that. He was an electrical engineer, an electronics engineer. And my mother had a high school diploma. <clears throat> and they told the doctors that the doctors were wrong and that in reality, I could do whatever I chose. And they were going to take me home and treat me like any other kid and like my older brother, who was two years older, and that I could grow up to do whatever I wanted. And they brought me up with that kind of attitude. It could be that they did what they did because they didn't have enough education to tell them that blind people couldn't do stuff. I don't know. But the bottom line is they let me do what other kids did. So we were in Chicago for five years. That's where I was born. And I went to the candy store and walked around my neighborhood with uh, other people and so on, just like they all went together. My cousins lived next door and we all went out together. 
And um, I drove a, a pedal car around uh, mostly our apartment. We didn't take it outside. We were upstairs. So it would have been a pain to take it up and downstairs. And I did run into a coffee table one day when I was somewhere between two and three, maybe three years old. <clears throat> and we went to the hospital and I had to have a couple stitches in my chin and I can still feel a little scar from it. But my mother didn't react like most parents would think she should have reacted. Oh, take the car away. The kid can't drive it. She said, you got to watch where you're going. <laughs> and I realized that she meant I had to listen better. And I did. I never hit the coffee table again, I want to point out. Uh, she let me take risks. My father let me take risks. And I believe that blind kids ought to have the same right to take risks as sighted kids. Sighted kids, although it's a scarier world today, sighted kids go out and play in the streets and oftentimes they're supervised, <clears throat> but they're allowed to go out in the streets or they're allowed to go to playgrounds and so on and they're supervised. Blind kids ought to have the same thing. Sighted kids learn a lot from watching television and they learn to read, they get to read picture books and so on. And there are technologies available today that allow blind children to have much more access to that. And parents of blind children need to recognize that blindness isn't the problem. The reality tends to be the barriers that the parents put in place in saying, my blind child can't do what sighted kids can do. I can't let my child go out and play. I can't let my child ride a bike. <clears throat> I can't let my child um, read because they can't. And they're told oftentimes by educators today, Braille is passe, which is totally um, false and inappropriate. So anyway, back in those days, Braille was the, the main re means of reading and writing. There were some recorded texts, but not a lot. There was a company called Recording for the Blind, which later became Recording for the Blind and Dyslexics that morphed into a company called Learning Ally. But I didn't hear about them until I was like 10 or 11 years old. <clears throat> um, and while I was in Chicago, my parents worked with other parents and organized um, a movement that got a kindergarten class started for blind kids. And so when I was four, which is when kids started kindergarten back there, I went to the Perry School and had a year of kindergarten. And in that class, I learned the rudiments of Braille. I learned to do other things. And again, I walked around just like any other kid would do. At five, we moved to California, and unfortunately, California didn't recognize the fact that I had a year of kindergarten, and so I had to take a second year, <clears throat> which I suppose was great, but it was very boring uh, because now I didn't have any access to any materials. It was a class of sighted kids. I was the only blind kid in the class, and mostly I kind of just sat around and didn't really get to do a whole lot. First, second, and third grade, sort of the same things, but my parents helped by reading all the materials and assignments to me. My father taught me math and literally taught me by the time I was six how to do algebra in my head. So my parents took a very active interest in my education, again, adopting the philosophy I could choose to do whatever I wanted. <clears throat> my mother helped me with spelling tests and other things like that and read English assignments and history assignments and sometimes science assignments and so on. 
And I was always interested in science, so that fascinated me. At the end of the third grade, we learned that the school district had hired a teacher, a resource teacher, who would come in to the Antelope Valley where we lived and begin to teach or help teach blind kids in the valley because there were several by that time. And so uh, Mrs. Hirschberger joined the, the school staff or the district staff. Over the summer between third and fourth grade, my mother and I refreshed my memory about Braille. We bought me a Braille writer and uh, wasn't a Perkins, but that's okay. And we continued to study Braille. Then I went into the fourth grade. And at the end of every day, I had a period with Mrs. Hirschberger and we really practiced my reading to get me improved in Braille. That was the main thing that she could offer me. I was able to walk around the school and so on. I walked to school when I was kindergarten through third grade because the school was only a couple of blocks from where I lived. But when I went into fourth grade, I was bused. And um, I think my, I can't remember whether my brother went to that school or not. But anyway, I was bused um, to the other side of town to go to a school that was more convenient for Mrs. Hirschberger to be teaching. And I was there for a year. And then I went to the typical school where kids for what we called, I guess actually I was there for three years. And then I went to what was middle school, seventh and eighth grade to another school not too far away from where I had been going from fourth through sixth grade. Continued to work with resource teacher and improve in Braille. And also starting in fourth grade, I started to get textbooks, which was really cool. I even got my weekly reader. And so I got the same things that other kids got, although <clears throat> typically my weekly reader was a couple of weeks behind what was handed out to most students. But I got to practice and use Braille. When I needed to take tests, typically what would happen is that while the other students were taking tests, teacher would take me into a corner or something and read questions and I had to give the answers. When it came time to do spelling tests, typically what would happen was that everyone would exchange their papers after the, the tests were conducted and the teacher would write the correct words on the board, the correct spellings of the words, but not in my class. I had to get up in front of the whole class and spell the words. So only once do I remember that I didn't spell a word correctly and realized it, but still, that's a little bit embarrassing. Do you think that early on you may have clued into the fact that you were using echolocation to get around? Oh, sure. Um, I, I know I was using a lot of echolocation, although I didn't know the term, but I rode a bike and I could hear the echoes of what was going on around me. And I worked hard to hear the echoes and I learned what different things meant. So I could drive, uh, ride down a street where cars were parked and I could avoid the cars because I could hear them coming. Or if I heard a car behind me that was moving and I even was encountering a car in front of me, I would stop and move to the side so that I wouldn't get hit by the car. Wow. Because I knew that those cars were bigger than I was. And it's, uh, you know, you learn the, the basic laws of physics, right? Uh, two pieces of matter don't occupy the same space at the same time in classical Newtonian mechanics. And so I figured that those cars are bigger than me and I didn't want to really risk it. So I did um, move to the side and let them by. But I learned how to do all of that. So up to this point where you're entering high school, have you not used any technology other than your Braille writer at this point? Slate and stylus. But we're talking about in the um, 
19, to 1960s to the yeah. mid-1960s, and there wasn't a lot of assistive technology to use as we know it today. Right. I mean, there were no calculators. Nobody had calculators. Right. Um, I learned to type, but I learned to type on a regular typewriter like anyone else. The difference is while the other kids were all complaining about the fact that there were no letters on the keyboard, because in, in typing class, you didn't put, you used typewriters that didn't have the letters on the keys because the teachers wanted you to learn to touch type. Piece of cake for me. In fact, um, one of the things in California that we were required to do at the end of eighth grade was to take a constitution test to see how much we knew about the constitution. And our eighth grade history class was all about teaching the constitution <clears throat> and other things relating to government. When that test was given, uh, it had been put in Braille. I think Mrs. Hirschberger put it in Braille, but I'm not sure whether she did or another transcriber volunteer, but I think she did. But anyway, I took the test at the same time everyone else did, and I typed my answers on the typewriter. So um, I learned to type, and uh, I think I was pretty successful with that. But then I went into high school. <clears throat> I did get an abacus along the way, a Cramner abacus, but I never really learned to use it a lot and didn't need to because I was doing math in my head anyway, and that worked out pretty well. And so I went on in high school. I got in trouble once by doing math in my head because my freshman algebra teacher insisted that people had to do their homework, write their homework, and show their work. And I said, well, you know, um, Mrs. Hirschberger was not a resource teacher for high school. And I said, I can put stuff in Braille, but how are you going to know? And she said, well, you have to write it down. You have to show your work. <laughs> and she was going to fail me in algebra. So one day I wrote the answer to a problem that was a homework problem, and I handed it in. And I think just to play safe, I actually wrote the correct answer and showed all my work and went through all the steps because I knew all that stuff. And all she did was held the paper up to the class and said, see, he can show his work. And I got to see that year. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> now, I tell you that because after that year, up through graduate studies in physics and calculus and differential calculus and other things, I never got below an A. But that teacher was not open-minded enough to recognize that verbally stating how I showed my work, since she had no other way to read it, verbally showing my work should have been just as appropriate. Right. And um, that's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, um, educators can be as as different as, as the rest of the world. Right. Um, and today, of course, the problem is we have more people who have access to being able to read and grade work, but Braille is greatly de-emphasized because educators say, well, you can listen to things yeah. and um, you've got computers and so on. None of that is really nearly as helpful as learning Braille, especially if we're going into the sciences and other things. And it, to take it a step further, None of that is nearly as relevant as Braille if you're learning English and diagramming sentences or learning how to compose good sentences, learning how to format, and so on. The reality is Braille is the means of reading and writing available to us. And anyone 
who is teaching any blind kid, and we're going to go back in a second and define blind, but anyone who is teaching any blind kid who refuses to teach them Braille is using a great disservice. And I think that's as criminal as it gets. And I don't care who the educator is, how much training they've had. If they're not teaching blind kids today to read and write, that's wrong. Yeah. Now, I want to define blind. Um, I have been a member of the National Federation of the Blind since 1982, and the definition of blindness I like the best is one that Kenneth Jernigan, um, the late Kenneth Jernigan, past president of the National Federation of the Blind coined when he was directing the Iowa Commission for the Blind. He said, you are blind if your eyesight has diminished to the point where you have to use alternatives to regular print in order to function. So if you've got to start using large print, if you've got to start using CCTVs or whatever, much less you're totally blind, you are blind. And you should learn the techniques that blind people learn because you may lose the rest of your eyesight. But even if you don't, the reality is that those techniques will enhance you and your environment a great deal. Example, <clears throat> take somebody who uses a CCTV. Great technology, magnifies print a lot. How fast do people read with a CCTV when you're displaying one letter or perhaps one word on the screen at a time? People read at 15, 20, 25 words a minute. Any person who truly learns to read Braille and is encouraged to read Braille can read Braille at 700, several hundred words a minute without any difficulty. Yeah, right. Braille is the means of reading and writing that's available to us. And people who deny us access to that and don't encourage us are, as far as I'm concerned, not really qualified to teach us. Yeah, we totally agree. We mentioned, you know, the the benefits of learning Braille mm -hmm. and having true literacy as someone who is blind and even low vision. Um, you know, I'm totally blind myself. We deal with a lot of blindness organizations here in Canada. And, you know, we, we tout Braille, Braille, Braille. You know, Braille is an asset. Um, the problem is that people talk about low vision and they distinguish it from blind. But if you're low vision to the point where you don't have full access to print, you ought to learn blindness techniques. That doesn't mean you're not going to use your eyesight. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean <clears throat> that vision impaired is, is a bad thing. And by the way, I like vision impaired and not visually impaired because visually, the last time I checked, I really didn't look different than anyone who was sighted. So visually, I think I'm the same. Vision impaired, although I think I have a lot of vision, I can accept that because eyesight is equated with vision. So vision impaired, I think, is, is more appropriate. And maybe I'll start a movement to try to get the world to change that. We <laughs> seem to have different movements to do so many things. But the fact is that there are thousands and thousands of testimonies of people who are vision impaired, who are not blind, who are older, who have been um, vision impaired their entire lives who will tell you that they regret that their teachers did not teach them Braille because they cannot read as well. And especially today, when Braille is so readily available, even by virtue of just getting any refreshable Braille display that will take any text document and automatically translate it as it goes into grade two Braille. Yeah, and I, we definitely wanted to ask you about the work that you're doing with independent science and making, I, I guess, products or access to science accessible to blind and visually impaired? So, so look, um, I've always been interested in science. I didn't have access to ways to do experiments in high school. 
So mostly I got to sit and watch other people do it and maybe tell them what they were supposed to do because I had the lab exercises in Braille because volunteer transcribers transcribed them, but I didn't get to do the experiments. And no matter how much you learn just by hearing and observing other people, there is nothing like getting involved in doing the lab experiments yourself because you will learn things and you will gain a more vast knowledge of doing experiments and so on than you will just by listening. When I was in college, my academic advisor was Dr. Frederick Rhinus, who was the discoverer of the neutrino. He's won a Nobel Prize for that and passed away since, since. But he and I had some conversations about blindness and he said, look, I don't get to do my own experiments now because I have academic duties. and my academic, My experiments usually take place in a diamond mine in South Africa, a mile below the earth, because that's how far we have to go before we can get all the other interfering particles out of the way so we can truly see subatomic particles that go through the earth. And he said, I don't do the experiments, but I tell people what I want and how I want them to do the experiments. And I, I tell them how I want them to collect data and so on. They pass the information to me and then I am the one as the person who's doing the theories and so on to actually analyze and, and write the papers and so on. That's great. And I agree with him, except he did get to do experiments at one time. He did learn all those techniques and that has to have enhanced his knowledge of how to teach people what he wanted them to do because he was familiar with the technologies in ways that someone who doesn't get to use them would never be familiar with them. I started a company in 1985 because I couldn't get a job. And I've started a company where we sold computer-aided design systems to architects. And I learned how to use the equipment because I certainly couldn't see it. So I learned how to use it in order to tell architects, if I sat them down in front of it, how to do what they did. But even so, what I did is I, got, I worked with someone who could read and who understood the products and I, I would sit at the keyboard and they would tell me to do some things, although I didn't get to truly draw, but I also understood what a digitizing pad was and so on. So I really played with the equipment, but I learned the technology so I could sit down and tell someone, oh, you want to put a fillet at this corner? Here's how you do it. And um, so I didn't need to see the equipment, but even there, I had learned so much about it that it was an easy process to do. I didn't have access to that going through college. In 2009, Independence Science was formed, and you can read about it at www.independentscience.com. And what Independence Science did was collaborated with Vernier Software and Technologies. And Vernier makes a product called the LabQuest. The LabQuest 2, Independence Science made talk by getting software written so that everything that the product did would be verbalized. And what the product does is it's a box. And that box has three connectors that can be attached to different kinds of probes and sensors that could do anything from measure the pH of a solution to measuring weight and force to measuring temperature, wind direction, gas pressure in a gas tank, even one that is um, a large, very expensive sensor on which you could build a bridge, as I understand it, and the sensor would do structural analysis and the bottom line is that all of the information goes from the sensors to the talking lab quest, 
where it is verbalized because it's all in non-graphic form. And so it's all in, in things that show up on an LED for the sighted world and for me, the LabQuest talks. So I can now suddenly have access to all that stuff that I could not do when I was growing up and, and dealing with science. The value is that um, what I also am able to do is to take that information <clears throat> and because it shows up in the, um, the lab quest, I can graphic. <clears throat> and software has even been added into the system so that I can make audio graphs and even print out graphs of the data that I collect. I get to do the things that everyone else has always been able to do, sort of. You know, when I was in school, the way you measured pH, if you were um, a high school chemistry student, pH being, again, the amount of acid or base in a solution, you stuck a piece of paper into the solution, something called litmus paper. And by the way, the color changed, you could tell about how much of a base or pH solution you had. That's great, except it's not nearly as quantitative and accurate as it really should be with a talking lab quest. Blind kids who use it today in high school and college suddenly become the stars of the class because we get totally accurate down to the decimal point information. And so blind kids nowadays are, are you know, are, people are jealous of them in class because they've got these technologies. And so laboratory science has become available to students. And um, we're working with agencies around the country to get the product made available for for blind kids and for and schools to purchase the products for, for blind kids as well. I'm I'm kind of a consultant and help with the marketing and and get to talk about it and sort of be intelligent and articulate it somewhat intelligently, I hope. But that's what independent science does. And independent science, of course, promotes science and technology, engineering and math, the science, especially the experimental part of science to the world. If you go to the independent science website, again, www.independentscience.com, you can even click on an accessible periodic table of the elements and you can hear all the information about <clears throat> uh, an element, its atomic symbol, its atomic number and mass and so on. And again, they put some audio graphing in there so you could even go down a column of like let's say the noble glass gases like helium and so on, which are inert gases, neon and so on. You could actually scroll down a column and you could hear with a graph how the um, atomic numbers or other values of the information changes, just like any sighted person could do by looking at it. So science is becoming more accessible. Um, Independent Science works with the National Federation of the Blind, works with other organizations, but the National Federation of the Blind is probably the largest proponent in this country of STEM, and they have STEM, several STEM camps every year and so on. It's an organization of about 50,000 people that truly has evolved with a philosophy, blindness is not the problem, it's the, it's the lack of education and misunderstanding and lack of information that sighted people have about blindness that make it a problem. We can live the lives that we want, but we oftentimes have to demand them. And while technology has made science experiments accessible, <clears throat> the attitudes of people still have not evolved to necessarily let us do that. Um, high school class I'm aware of has a blind student and the school is 
demanded that that person can't participate in labs unless there is somebody specifically there watching what they do and assisting them because they can't do it themselves. They don't dare take the chance. Wrong answer. Either you have the same confidence in students because blindness isn't the problem or you're backward. How's that for a hard line answer? <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, we need to give a nod to brilliant people like Ray Kurzweil, you know, coming out with the reading edge and <clears throat> developing technology that allows us access to print. Um, without those innovations early on, we may still not have a product like this for doing science projects. But we also wouldn't have voice recognition if it weren't for Ray Kurzweil. Right. Um, I worked with the National Federation of the Blind in um, starting in 1976. Ray had come to the Federation after going to various um, funding sources within the government in the United States saying, I've got a machine that will read print out loud and we don't care what type style or set of styles or whether it's typed or proportionally spaced. And no one would give him funding. So he finally went to the Federation and he said, you know, I really need to get some help. And the Federation was pretty pessimistic about it too. You know, people are always saying we've got the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> but he was so ardent and so emphatic about it that he finally convinced the Federation to come and see his machine. And the leaders said, okay, we'll come, but we don't want to read whatever you got because that you know, probably can do that. What we want to do is bring our own stuff and you don't get to know what it is in advance. And Ray said, bring it on. And you know what? It did. It read his stuff. It read their stuff. So they began to develop a program where foundation funding was solicited and obtained to pay for several machines at a cost of $50,000 a machine, which is how Ray got funding for the early prototypes. But the Federation took five of those machines and placed them around the country for blind people to use. And I was hired literally to travel around the country for 18 months teaching people to use the machine, sometimes fixing the machine, writing training curricula, um, watching what they did when they used the machines, and then finally, after 18 months, writing a report of what we believed needed to go into the final production model of the machine. Then I went to work for Ray in 1970, uh, late 1978, and so I was there for six years until Xerox bought the company and then invited a lot of the people to leave. By that time, I had had to go into sales for Kurzweil because I was going to be laid off since I wasn't a revenue producer originally, but rather a scientist doing human factor studies. So I went into sales, lowered my standards from science to sales. You know, <laughs> I love to say that. And um, and Xerox finally said, well, you know, we got the company now. You don't need to be with us anymore. Thank you for all your service and goodbye. Much less polite than that, but they did that to all the pre-Xerox takeover people. And it was after that that I started the company that I mentioned earlier. But Ray developed the technology with, with colleagues that allowed any printed material to be read. <clears throat> Literally, that optical character recognition software that you get for free these days is the outgrowth of what Ray did. And now, uh, and then later, after spending some time developing probably if not still the best sounding world, the greatest synthesizer for music and so on, one of the best, he turned to voice recognition and out of that eventually came Dragon and now Dragon Naturally Speaking, which I use for typing and creating a lot um, because it's quicker than using a keyboard, but I still have to go back and, and review what I do. But the bottom line is, yeah, Ray had an incredible influence on all of us with the inventions 
that he developed. Um, and, and you're right. We all deserve a, a great deal of gratitude to go his way because of the work that he has done. Listening to you talk, it, it seems interesting to me because it really feels like, like technologically, we're in pretty good shape. Um, there, the amount of assistive technology that's out there is is really amazing. It really allows for a lot of people to do a lot of things that they've never have been able to before. It seems to me the the real issue right now is education. There's a real need to educate parents out there because time and time again on the podcast, when we when we talk to people, we always hear the same stories about their upbringing. And there's a real difference between people whose parents were very much supportive of them just going out there and just doing stuff, as opposed to the parents who are a lot more protective. Mm -hmm. I feel like those formative years in, in kids who are vision impaired. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> there's, a, there's a real difference there. Do you, do you see that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, it, is, it is totally true. And I, I do believe that parents need more of an education, and that's what organizations like the National Federation of the Blind have been doing. But let's go back and look at, uh, and, and I'm more knowledgeable about the United States, although some knowledgeable about Canadian um, structure as well with the CNIB and so on. But let's look at what agencies do typically with a a blind person using my definition of blindness who comes in to their sphere of influence and applies for services. If you have eyesight, um, or as I love to say, if you're still light dependent, then um, if you have eyesight, then you um, are, are taught to use that. You're encouraged to use that. Oh, you're given a cane, but people will say you should use your eyesight as long as you can. For the most part, some agencies are becoming wiser about that. But um, typically they say you should use your eyesight as long as you can. And they won't teach you blindness techniques. And, and more important, they will not teach you an attitude and a philosophy about blindness that says you're as okay as anyone else until you lose all of your eyesight. Right. <clears throat> and then they're forced to, and by then, of course, they're not even really teaching you it's okay. They have to teach you to use a cane. They have to teach you some braille or they have to do some of this other stuff rather than saying we're going to give you access to everything that you need to be as successful in the world as you want right from the outset and yes you're going to learn what blindness is all about but that's going to enhance you because then you can choose at any given point in time which technology you use right. okay so the agencies are a big part of it one of my favorite stories is about a gentleman who lived in new jersey and went to work every day in philadelphia he lived in mount laurel new jersey and would take the new jersey transit train across the bridge over into pennsylvania to philadelphia where he went to work <clears throat> and he was losing his eyesight and went through this same process with the new jersey commission he had a cane didn't really use it they didn't encourage it a whole lot one day he was walking along the train tracks next to a train to get on the train and go into New Jersey or into Philadelphia, into Pennsylvania. He wasn't using his cane. There was a little bit of a cloudy day, but he could see just fine. So he got to the place where you turn and go into the train and get into the car. He turned and stepped into the car, but it wasn't in the car. It was between cars and he fell on the tracks. And uh, almost immediately the train began to move because he was the last guy, but 
Somebody saw him and they stopped the train and they got him out. I will tell you that he became an extremely avid cane user after that. He realized that no matter what, his eyesight wasn't giving him all the information that he needed. It wasn't that it wasn't giving him any, but that was a perfect example of where he should have been using a cane and his eyesight. <clears throat> and so the agencies don't help. And the agencies don't have a deep rooted, strong philosophy about blindness that says blind people are as capable as anyone else. And that also then translates to the educational system. And the educational system not only doesn't encourage Braille, but by and large, uh, they don't deal with a strong, deep-seated philosophy overall that said, just because you're blind, it doesn't mean you can't do stuff. And of course, they say, well, we can't force the parents to do things, but you can really show blind children in your school's education system a world that their parents don't show them and get them dreaming about that. And yes, you can also then work with parents. And if the educational system feels it can't do it, then it should reach out to consumer organizations that have that philosophy. And the National Federation of the Blind has fought so many cases in this country. Um, there was a, a case where there was a child in Florida, I believe, maybe it was uh, New Jersey, and I can't remember which right now. The child went from first to sixth grade being in a class for developmentally disabled kids because the child couldn't read and the school was convinced that, yeah, this child can't see, but it's got a developmental disability as well. After sixth grade, the child went to summer camp, a summer camp for blind kids and learned Braille in two weeks. Wow. And the Federation helped force the school district to not only teach this child Braille, but get an appropriate settlement to help the child move forward and so on. There's no excuse for that. I've seen schools where high schools deny children the right to take their guide dog to school. It's all about saying you're not really as equal as I am. And that's inappropriate. The educational system, the rehabilitation agency has to be part of that education process. Um, the consumer organizations need to be part of the process. But yeah, you're right. It, it truly starts with the parents. But if you've got the doctors who are still saying that your child isn't really going to be as equal as I, as, as I or any other person, if you've got a doctor who looks at a child's eyes or an adult's eyes who's losing eyesight due to age-related macular degeneration, and they realize that that person is going to be blind, the doctors say, sorry, there's nothing I can do, and leave the room. Right. Because they've been taught that if you can't save a person's eyesight, you're a failure. They don't deal with the other aspects of it. Right. You're not a failure if, if you can't save a person's eyesight because you don't know what to do because the technology and the other systems don't exist to do it, but you can certainly save a life and help somebody continue to be as meaningful as they want to be simply by getting them access to the right resources. And that's absolutely comes back to, I think, a, another prong of education where, where you know, not only do, do a lot of organizations, school systems, and generally just the general public needs so much education in terms of what um, people who are, are vision impaired are able to do. Yeah, well, and that's exactly right. It's, it's not easy. We're a low incidence disability. 
but we are part of the same village. The founder of the National Federation of the Blind, Dr. Tembrook, put it very well when he said, blind people have the same right to live in the world. And, you know, think about it this way. You go to work for a company. Most any company, we're going we're gonna to say where you have an office job. I won't deal with Starbucks or anything like that because that doesn't fit this model. Not because Starbucks is, is bad, but for what I want to point out, it, you're, you're not going to get the same technology as a barista as you will if you're working in an office. You go into the office for the first day. What do they give you? They give you a computer. They give you a desk. They give you a keyboard. They give you a monitor and other kinds of technologies, maybe even pens and pencils, if people remember what those are. And um, other technologies, they usually have a nice coffee machine, probably touchscreen, and all sorts of accommodations and amenities for sighted people. You're a blind person going to work at that same place, and you may very well, as so often happens, run into people who say, well, it's an extra expense. We can't provide you with a screen reader. That means you're too expensive. We shouldn't hire you. Or um, I'm sorry that our coffee machine is, is you know, it's not something you can use, but that's, that's the breaks, right? Um, and we can't pay for IRA so that you can have access to that coffee machine when you want access to it. Um, and we can't provide you some of the other things, even though they provide electricity and power and windows for sighted people to have lights and all that other stuff. We're part of the same world, and we have the same right to have the technologies that allows us to do the same job as anyone else. And that does mean they should provide a screen reader. That does mean they should provide the technologies that we need, maybe a refreshable Braille display. That does mean they should provide a mechanism for me to use that same coffee machine. You're not going to tell me I'm not as equal as you are because I won't accept it and I will fight as hard as I can to make sure that I have the same access to the same things that you do, whoever you are who happens to be cited. And you should think that's a good thing, whoever you are. And you know, that's that's part of the frustration behind where we are at technologically and where we are at with assistive technology, because really we have the technology in place to make so many more things accessible, but there just isn't the, there isn't the the drive to do that. Every company on the planet should be able to build an accessible, a completely accessible workplace for any given disability. Well, the ability is there to do it. The desire is not, as you point out. And um, yes, companies should do it. They should want to do it. There's another aspect of it. Typically speaking, if you are blind and you do get a job, knowing as many of us do, that the unemployment rate among employable blind people is somewhere in the neighborhood of 65%. If you do get a job, you're gonna fight like the devil to keep it and do a good job. And you're gonna develop a stronger loyalty toward the company that gives you a job than most people do. So companies should want to make sure that blind people have the things that they need. And they do have the right to expect that you do at least the same job. You should have the mindset that you want to do at least as well as anyone else, just like everyone else should have. But we tend to be very loyal if we're given a job at a company simply because we know how hard it was to get that job in the first place. I've had places where I've applied to get a job. I didn't say in my cover letter 
with my resume that I was blind. I went into the interview and was confronted by this person who would say things like, well, my God, you're blind. How can you come to work here? You're, you can't get here every day. Even though I said, I got here, didn't I? And I'll tell you, I didn't use anyone's help to do it. Why should I? I don't need to do that. I was um, recruited by a headhunter for a job. And we uh, talked several times and they had sent an airplane ticket to fly me, this was a while ago, from where we live to Northern California. The night before the interview <clears throat> and the night before I was to fly up, um, the recruiter called me and said, I was just looking at your resume and I see you got a lot of stuff on here about blindness and blind people. Is somebody in your family blind? Just curious. And I said, yeah, I am. Oh my God, I got to call the company right away there. They may not even want you um, because you're blind. You can't do the job. And I said, look, you've accepted me. You accepted my resume. What do you mean I can't do the job? The job was dealing with the development of voice output technology. It was after I worked for Ray Kurzweil and what did Kurzweil's reading machine use? Voice output technology. I knew all about that stuff. I knew about the Votrax speech synthesizer at the time and other things. And I knew what this company wanted to do and could help. But the next morning the interview was canceled simply because I was blind, simply because someone had a very narrow-minded attitude. Now, jump forward four and a half years. <clears throat> I had formed my company and then in 1989, I decided to go back into the workforce and sold my company. And one day my wife and I were looking at the newspaper. We had been married seven years at that time. By the way, my wife, Karen, also is a person with a so-called disability. And I don't like the word disability, but I really haven't come up with something else. Differently able doesn't work for me because I'm as able as anyone else in the same way. I do things using different techniques, but I'm just as able in the same way anyone else is able. That's what the brain does. Anyway, um, Karen and I were reading job announcements and we found this one that sounded really cool for me dealing with high tech, um, hot swappable disk drives that this company was developing and other things for the government and all sorts of cool, neat, nifty stuff. And I said to Karen, <clears throat> I'm gonna apply for this. And she said, you should. Um, I said, well, but the only thing is, do I say in my cover letter I'm blind or I'm not? Now, you know, wives are smarter than guys sometimes. Sometimes guys are smarter than wives, but wives pretty much are smarter at, at points in the world. In this case, she was. She said, you're an idiot. And I said, why? She said, because you are. I had hired a number of salespeople by that time. I had been in sales management positions. And she said, what's the most important thing you said you learned when you took a Dale Carnegie sales course when you started working for Kurzweil? And what's the most important thing that you tell every salesperson that you hire? And I wasn't quite with her. You know, I told you, they're smarter. Um, finally, she said, you always said, turn perceived liabilities into assets. That's an absolute important sales technique, but it's grossly crucial when it comes to blind people. Turn perceived liabilities into assets. You ever um, heard about these cartoons where someone gets a bright idea and a little light goes off right above their head? Well, I heard the switch flip. And I went in and I wrote my cover letter. And here are the last two paragraphs of the letter. It started out this way. The most important thing that you need to know about me when considering my application is that I'm blind. 
The reason you need to know that is because as a blind person, I have had to sell all my life just to survive and just to function. I had to sell to convince someone that I could buy a house because I'm blind. I've had to sell to convince people to let me take my guide dog into a grocery store and even fly on an airplane or rent an apartment and do other things simply because I'm blind. So when you're hiring someone for this position, do you want to hire someone who sells for eight or 10 hours a day and then goes home and the job's done? Or do you want to consider hiring someone who understands truly the nature of sales for the science and art that it is and who sells 24 hours a day as a way of life? Two weeks later, I got a call from that company and they said, because of your letter, we're inviting you down and I got the job with them that eventually led to me being in New York. Then I got recruited away and eventually ended up opening the office in the World Trade Center. But that's what it's about. The fact is job interviews are always sales presentations, but blind people, whether we know it or not, are always selling. And I could turn that cover letter into almost any situation and use it. You know, teachers, do you want to hire somebody who just teaches and at the end of the day they go home or do you want to hire someone who teaches all the time because we're always teaching people what it's like to be blind you know or some terms like that right. as an example the reality is that we can turn that perceived liability because it's not a liability it's a perception we can turn that into an asset and um, we all should do that now you know, there's so much to talk to you about and our time is limited what I will say, though, is that, of course, you do a lot of uh, motivational speaking, assuming that a lot of it has to do with your experience on September 11th in, of course, the World Trade Center. And I would, I would actually just side note to, to anybody who is interested in hearing more about that story. You did write a book about that called Thunderdog. Am I right? Correct. It's a number one New York Times bestselling or was and may well be again at some point. But Thunderdog, the story of a blind man is guide dog and the triumph of trust at ground zero. You can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, buy it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And I know it's available up there in Canada, too. And right. all, all over the country, it's been written in several languages. And yeah, it does talk about the fact that I worked in the World Trade Center and I escaped from the 78th floor on September 11th. So anybody who wants that story, they can go to the book. My question, however, is um, in your motivational speaking, what is sort of your central message that, that you really want to, to come through when you're talking to just schools or other people who are vision impaired? Um, or sighted people. There are a couple. One is um, that there are lessons to be learned from September 11th about trust and teamwork and perseverance and being able to survive in even the most extremely unexpected and dangerous circumstances possible. And um, one thing that I touch on some, I, I have touched on some, which I'll get to in a second concerning fear is something that I didn't deal with as much as I would have liked to, and we're going to address that. But I, I do talk about the fact that we can deal with our fears and we can move on. Um, and I want to talk about, and I do talk about the lessons of September 11th and the, the things that I just said. If you want to look at it in the negative context, look at it, what a team of 19, in their own eyes, highly motivated people did that brought the world to its knees by keeping it a secret and working together. Teamwork is a very powerful thing. 
And in reality, we always do things as a team. Somebody can say, I did that. Einstein invented the theory of relativity. Well, he did take the leap and do it. But he also had a lot of people that helped him with the math. And think of the hundreds of years of scientific advancements before him that led to him having the knowledge to create that theory. The reality is teamwork is all around us. Trust is all around us. People don't trust like they should. I've been using guide dogs for a long time, and everyone says how dogs unconditionally love, and that's true, but they don't unconditionally trust. The difference between dogs and people is that dogs typically are open to trust, and we see trust under so much attack that we've closed to it, and we need to open our attitudes about at least exploring being trusted and trusting other people. Either people will earn our trust or they won't, but we have to be open to it, and that's something that we don't really deal with nearly as much as we should. I said I talk about fear a little bit because I survived that day because I was able to control my fears. I learned what to do to get around in the World Trade Center. I learned the whole complex. I even worked with the Port Authority emergency management people and fire personnel so that I knew what to do because I ran an office and it was up to me to be the leader of that office, which meant I needed to know what to do if there were ever an emergency. I needed to know how to get people out. Um, even if there weren't an emergency, I needed to go take people out to lunch and know where to go. I didn't want people leading me. I wanted to lead them because I wanted them to recognize that I was as capable as they were. And besides that, if I let people kind of escort me around and I couldn't do it myself, how would it look if a couple hours later we're negotiating multi-million dollar contracts? I'm not a good negotiator. I'm not in a good position in that case, unless I demonstrated that I'm as capable as the next guy. Well, one of the things I realized during the pandemic is I haven't really taught people how to deal with fear, how to learn to control their own fears. And so we're finishing up the process of developing a coaching program and course online entitled Blinded by Fear, because people who face unexpected major life changes or things that happen to them typically are blinded by fear. That is, they can't see how to go forward. They're paralyzed and totally stuck, not understanding what to do or afraid to do anything. And my job will be in this program to teach people how to control their fears. I'm not going to say get rid of their fears because fear can be a very powerful motivator, but you can control it. So Blinded by Fear will be coming out over the next month or two and uh, we're, we're pretty excited by that. So I'll be doing that because right now people aren't inviting motivational speakers, although I am still fully available to speak virtually or um, go somewhere, but typically travel isn't so wise right now, but I, I am available to speak and, and to talk to people virtually about this as well. Yeah, you know what, uh, we'd love to have you back on um, when Blinded by Fear is out because it sounds like a fascinating program and I think you know much needed. Well, I think it is. Um, you know, the pandemic is a major life change, right? And people are not sure what to do about it. So we'll be putting this all in in play very quickly. We're finishing some of the web stuff tomorrow. I'm developing an online course that will be part of the program as well um, that'll be available. And then we'll be able to do one-on-one -on -one coaching with people to really help them change their mindset to being able to control their fears and not be blinded by them. Michael, 
once again, thank you so much for taking some time out and talking with us. And yeah, let's have you back on uh, in a few months when uh, Blended by Fear is ready. Love it. We'll um, make sure you get all the information about it when it comes out and um, would, would love to come and talk about it. And maybe you'll have more questions we can answer, but I really appreciate you having us on. And, and I hope we've been able to inspire your guests a little bit. I really appreciate my time here and I've learned a lot too. So it's great. And it's always good to make new friends. Awesome. And Michael, if people wanted to reach out and book you for any seminars or speaking engagements, where can they find you? They can find me at www.michaelhingson.com. That's www.michaelhingson.com. Or they can email me at mike at michaelhingson.com and be glad to, you know, to work with them. I do return emails and we'll be glad to answer any questions. And, um, and I hope some people who hear this will want a speaker and probably right now virtually, but that's okay. I've got a green screen and I can uh, look as visually pleasant um, as the next person. And we are certainly glad to, to do virtual talks. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Michael. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. Okay. Take care. You too. Whoa, holy cow, that man has done a lot. Yeah, he's worked, you know, with guys like Ray Kurzweil, who developed the Kurzweil Reading Machine. Uh, yeah. He's done stuff with Ira. Yeah, you know, and the funny part about it is, you know, we talked to him for over almost an hour. <laughs> yeah. Even Didn't even get to the 9-11 stuff. I but know. I feel like he's probably talked a lot about that in the, you know, whatever, the 2019 years since it's happened that I think that, you know, I think it was okay. And I really, I would recommend anybody who's really interested in the story, go buy the book, Thunderdog. It's a good read. And, uh, you know, you'll get sort of the the full story. But uh, yeah, it's a really amazing guy. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. A huge Braille advocate. Um... Yeah, and and I have to say, I'm really, I'm intrigued by this new project that he's got, the, The Blinded by Fear, because I feel like that's a really really valuable program yeah we'll definitely try to get him back on once that program is rolled out and he can fill us and our listeners in on it but you know you're right i don't know how often you know i talk to people who are totally blind who have issues going shopping you know or going to the gym you know they can't safely keep their six foot distance away and um you know, I guess unless you're wearing a sign saying, please stay away from me, what are you going to do? You still got to go out and live your life, right? So even just going and taking the bus or going to the grocery stores is mm-hmm. a real, it, it's, it's a process and it's, it can be scary because you, you don't, you feel like you don't have that control that you, you normally do. And you certainly don't have the control to, to socially distance properly if, if somebody, if the other people aren't paying attention. So I could see how that could really sort of color your, your day-to-day perceptions. Well, and I, you know, the other side of, of being scary is you see some of the hate that's going on as well um, between people and, you know, their, their ethnicities, um, people on buses that are getting spit on or harassed yeah. or assaulted. And, you know, there's, there's almost, there's a right to be scared at some point. Um, and what do you do in that situation? You know, I, People just need to stay calm, relax. You know, we, we will get out of this, but we need to be there for each other, support each other. Well, this is you, Mr. Sunshine that's, and Lollipop. That's, that's right. That's, 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 what happened? <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde, buddy. Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> get it. Oh.
the show, you were <laughs> That's right. Jekyll now. No, Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> That's right. Don't you forget it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so Ryan. Rob. I think that brings us to the part of the show where you tell people where they can find us. They can find us online at atbanter.com. Uh, hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire. Uh, cowbell at atbanter.com. They can also find us on Facebook and Instagram if they so desire. And even Twitter. Oh, right. We are on Twitter. I should know that because I look at Twitter like 18 times a day. Yeah, maybe that's your problem. <laughs> it turns you into Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Learn nothing from Steve. Uh, all right, everybody. Well, that is going to about do it for us this week. Uh, big thanks to everybody for listening in. And of course, thank you so much to Michael Hinson for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 